there's no reason that this school shouldn't have continued with the growth rates that it showed, both in TVOS measures and in the district's own mean achievement level increase, which is a part of the academic performance framework, the, and the growth from mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the bottom category to the middle category out of five on the APF. Those, those should absolutely, uh, they were enough. All of that was enough for the achievement school district not to take them over, but it wasn't enough for the school district to continue to move forward with that school. And I think that's the real flaw. Everybody knows what a good school looks like. One great teacher in each classroom, dynamic principal, high test scores, order everywhere, Schedule set, curriculum specified, teachers teaching, students learning. But what if this framing, though not quite wrong, misses the mark? Maybe a good school is a place where the boundaries separating classroom spaces are permeable and teachers share responsibility for all students' well-being and achievement. Where everything in the school is negotiable except the well-being and development of the teachers and students in it where students know they are cared for and respond by learning to care in return. Maybe a good school is a space where all are growing and equity is a constant concern, where each one has a voice and everybody has responsibility, where teachers are leaders and leaders are always learning. I'm Barb Stengel, your host for this podcast. Join us for Chasing Bailey as we try to figure this out. It's been a minute since our last episode. Sorry to keep you waiting to hear just why Bailey on Greenwood Avenue was shut down, but I couldn't explain how that happened without the help of Principal Christian Sawyer and Dr. Alan Coverstone, who was the director of the iZone in Nashville and the administrator who got the ball rolling for the Bailey transformation. And those two guys are tough to pin down. Once we got to talking, I was fascinated by the way Christian and Alan reflected on their experience with Bailey. Taking responsibility, not blaming anybody else, but still speaking forthrightly about systemic blind spots, racism, and the political ecology of the district and the state that made it extremely difficult to set a course and stick with it. In a moment, I'm going to let Dr. Coverstone explain the I-Zone and Bailey's place in it, but first I want to remind you what was happening in Nashville, Tennessee in the early 20-teens. No Child Left Behind was going strong, and Barack Obama and Arne Duncan were doubling down on engineering change in public schools that weren't achieving the expected test scores. Race to the Top and school improvement grants were making funds available to schools labeled failing. But there were always strings attached, strings that limited the educational prerogatives of principals, teachers, and even district administrators. Yeah, the I-Zone was the result of um, looking at No Child Left Behind data and data trends. I put together a report in July of 2011 
that simply looked at the data of where schools had gone uh, to a lower status on No Child Left Behind and just asked the question, how many of those have we been able to reverse that downward trend and move them up? And it was almost none. Um, certainly some went into that first level and came back a couple, but but once they went to the second level down, um, you know, they just kept progressing down. And so I just charted it out and said all the schools would be in these statuses within five years if we didn't do something about it. And probably my theory of action was that um, if, uh, if that that if the schools with all the assistance and support that we were giving them were having these results, then probably they needed something different than the other schools did if they were to turn it around. And um, you know, we debated that internally for a while in the cabinet and um, Dr. Register uh, went with it. And also the timing coincided with the school improvement grant um, okay. and the magnet school grant. And so he just combined those things together, put those under my um, authority and, and that was the birth of the I-Zone. And what was your role when you went looking at these data? I was the charter school office director. Okay. And um, there was a lot of overlap in the Obama administration. And I'd been to a, a couple of meetings where Secretary Duncan was talking about their theory behind the school improvement grant. I read, I read extensively on the school improvement grant and what they were trying to accomplish. And, um, you know, I was, a, I was, you know, I'm not a privatizer. I was, uh, I believed that there was some capacity to be had in opening some charter schools and that we should learn from them and try to implement things that would work. And so this was essentially that, uh, an attempt to, uh, you know, what I thought was working in the schools that were working is they had strong leaders, they had creative teachers, and they were on the same team trying to design from the inside out to build a school. And, um, that's essentially the model. And there were obviously other details and it had to be molded to the school improvement grant requirements, but that was essentially the model for the eyes. Um, yeah, so I was advocating we need to do something different. And, um, you know, eventually they said, okay, do it. And so that's that's when I got the chance. Okay, so you're the director of the I-Zone, and in the summer of 2012, you appoint Christian Sawyer as principal of Bailey. You told me something before about why, why you thought Dr. Sawyer might be a good choice for that position. Yeah, Dr. Sawyer had a vision for a school that was a team that was, um, you, you know, working together, uh, employing teacher leadership, developing real leadership on that team. Uh, it wasn't sort of a program that he he was going to bring in that he would just make everyone do and look for fidelity of implementation. It was a, it was an opportunity to um, give teachers an opportunity to lead and to genuinely uh, develop the school that they wanted to have, which is that model for the iZone in the first place. Over the course of the first seven episodes, you've heard much about the Bailey story. The first year was marginally better as Christian made the confidence in kids' capacities a priority. And as he told me once again, he wanted to really listen to students and with the guidance of his teachers, respond to what kids already knew and needed to grow. I think I found such a powerful starting place in listening to the students, but also thinking about the power of teacher voice and teacher mm -hmm. leadership. Mm -hmm. And knowing that, you know, having just come from the classroom, that was like, that became the way forward. There was no functional teaming yet, but there were signs that the faculty was pulling together. 
and both faculty and students began to take the morning mantra seriously. Individuals of character, scholars for life, leaders now and tomorrow. I asked Dr. Coverstone what he expected in that first year. I was looking for that team to emerge, and I knew that he, uh, you know, he inherited his staff, and I got the emails and calls from them, uh, and um, many of them were not at all happy uh, with anything that was going on. I don't mean, they weren't happy with Christian. I mean, they weren't happy, period. That's partly why everybody was kind of fragmented anyway. Um, but they definitely saw me as, you know, big bad outside takeover, and they were uh, upset and furious about that. So I knew that there would be um, teachers that would that would leave, that would have to leave uh, for that team to be created. But I also knew that you had to have a vision and you had to get started. So, look, I, I've never gotten into any kind of school turnaround situation where I didn't believe that there needed to be time given. And I think that's one of the challenges that um, has really complicated a lot of the school turnaround efforts is just don't give the time. And um, I thought three years wasn't really enough, right? But you know, I thought, oh well, three classes out of four classes of students, you know, maybe we could make it a long way mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. toward what we needed there, um, which you know, obviously was uh, putting a, a whole ton on Christian and the team. But you know, it started with belief, and it started with the the idea that um, if if people took ownership, they cared about the kids, they believed they could learn, that we could do a lot. And so, no, I didn't expect there to be revolution the first year, uh, good or bad. Um, I, I just, um, you know, hoped that it would get a good foothold and a good foundation on which to build the build the rest. You know, the big epiphany, if there is one, is what we're doing isn't working. Let's do something different. And so, you know, it was all about new. And I was under no illusions that we had a roadmap. You know, I didn't want somebody to come in and and apply a roadmap. You know, I wanted somebody who believed in kids, who was a great teacher, who had a little bit of experience and who would build a new path. And that would force him to be real with the kids and and to believe in his teachers and develop their sense of ownership and leadership. So yes, absolutely, that was what I was looking for. So that first year was really about planning for teaming and teacher leadership with residency collaboration with Peabody underway Some teachers saw the direction and chose to leave. An active recruiting and hiring season in spring 2013 led to hiring more teachers of color, some who would become teacher leaders. It was interesting to hear Alan and Christian talk about hiring teachers of color. Um, I I left it up to Christian because, I, I mean, I believed in what he was going to be able to build and develop and I didn't need to micromanage it. Looking back, and he may have had more insight on this, but I definitely had a bigger blind spot about teachers of color than you know I've subsequently developed. Um, and so that was definitely not something that I was pushing him to do either, um, you know, which I should have been. And I definitely agree with Alan. The sense of like my own racial consciousness and looking at the concept of anti-racism was, I, I was early in my journey and look back, I wish I had been able to name and, and you know, it's definitely, I was very early in my journey in that sense. Despite this limited consciousness, the professional staff was diversified in important ways in 2013-14. And it was a year of impressive energy as teams figured out how to listen and respond to the Bailey Scholars. 
Claire Jasper arrived as Dean of Culture and brought with her a flock of professionals and paraprofessionals, largely people of color, to implement a culture shift toward communal responsibility, keeping kids in classrooms through a restorative model that prioritized social-emotional well-being in earnest. Whitney Bradley and Lakeisha Harding, both of whom would become teacher leaders, came to Bailey through the TELUS partnership with Vanderbilt. Julie Hasfield arrived with a vision of how to make the shift to STEM more than a slogan. Almost daily, team meetings let teachers and culture and behavior specialists wrestle together with kids' progress in grouping, curriculum planning, and discipline in logistics. I asked Dr. Sawyer if it was rocky getting teaming going. Well, I think at times the teacher leaders were like, Christian, stop trying these new ideas because <laughs> we would just try those, try that, try those, try that. And eventually we all kind of found our footing, but I was part of the problem because I was constantly like learning new things. Oh, let's try this. Let's try that. In a way it was like distracting from finding cohesion. Um, and I think a lot of wisdom on the team was like, let's, let's co mm -hmm. let's cohere. Mm -hmm. let's, let's dig our feet in the sand here. Um, and get some footing. Why were you so willing to listen to them? Uh, I can remember a mentor of mine saying, as a principal, the best move you can ever make is to listen to teacher leaders mm -hmm. and the wisdom and intuition that comes from teachers. Um, and I think maybe because I was so close to the classroom at the time, mm -hmm. I was even closer to the work. And I think now as I've continued in my work as an administrator, uh, you know, the further you get away, the more you have to fight to stay in the heart of the work. Mm -hmm. Helen, were you, so in that second year, were you starting to get impatient? Like, okay, wait a minute. I want to see more progress. I want to see results. Did you have a sense of the rhythm of the thing? Yeah, no, I felt like the rhythm was fine. I mean, the, the budget and staffing flexibility was all a part of the design and, and, um, I liked hearing things from Christian when he would reflect that maybe he was doing too many changes and he needed to, you know, mm -hmm. pick them. And, you know, I, so no, I thought all that was, I, I was not impatient. I mean, would I have loved it if it had, you know, if, if all of a sudden every, every measure had gone up about 80%? Sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but only because they'd write books about us and not because it particularly helped the kids or would be anything that was sustainable. So mm -hmm. no, I was definitely happy to see it evolve that way. Um, I will point out that you know, I'm looking at it right now. I mean, the I, I believe the school went from a, a one to a two growth rate in numeracy and literacy in that first year. Mm -hmm. And that was saying something. And it had a ways mm -hmm. to go before mm -hmm. it cross any of those achievement level thresholds. So no, I didn't, you know, and, and I knew the team was coming together. So no, mm -hmm. I would, okay. I, yes, I would have loved it, but it, you know, that was not realistic, nor was it something that I was hoping for. I have to add something, Barb. Yeah. You would ask me, why did I listen to the teachers? Okay, I got to throw this in. You may not remember this, but you told me in my office when I was, because you were a part of the mix too, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. said, Christian, get out of the, get the hell out of the teacher's way. I might've said that. Yeah, that's good advice. Mm -hmm. The teams really hit their stride in 2014-15. Dream teams began to feed off one another. Data systems were figured out, and a couple of talented teacher leaders with key competencies left other Nashville schools to become part of the Bailey team.
Lindsay Nelson in ELA and Sarah Prow in science, both TELUS graduates, wanted to be part of the team and the leadership structure that Dr. Sawyer and friends were building. But it wasn't just the structure that attracted them. It was the capacity to act as educators. I was, again, learning every day about leadership. And I think just epiphanies started to emerge around it's not, Christian, about giving a technical fix to an adaptive challenge. It's about empowering the team to come up with the solutions. I mean, we had brilliant educators. Every Once we built these teams, I mean, the momentum and the capacity in that bottle was explosive. So I, I started to shift in thinking about distributive leadership and Christian, like, get out of their way, create mm -hmm. the conditions on the team for their leadership to blossom instead of a technical fix, which I think nationally was, was the thinking around how you, you grow student achievement was too often a technical recipe, if you will, of implement mm -hmm. this instructional step and then this instructional step instead of a focus on teams. So in the third year of Sawyer's tenure, there was evidence that good accomplished teachers wanted to get into Bailey always a sign of a good school for my money. Successes were mounting in the form of improving test scores, spectacular growth, successful athletic teams, developing extracurriculars, and happy kids, teachers, and families. But pressures were mounting, too. Articles in the local newspaper speculated about two lists. First, which I-Zone schools would be taken over by the state and converted to charter schools. And second, which schools would have new principals when the test score dust settled because they were still on the state's priority list, that is, still in the bottom 5% with respect to student achievement? I asked Dr. Coverstone what had to happen in that third year for Bailey to stay open with Dr. Sawyer as its principal. As he explained, Bailey could escape state takeover by demonstrating growth, but getting out of the bottom 5% in a testing system where schools are always ranked against each other, that would be a long-term project. Well, to come off the list, it would have had to, uh, I forget the amount, but the overall success rate was just a measure of the ach absolute achievement numbers, um, you know, would have had to rise to the level that it was no longer in the bottom 5% of schools. Okay. And, and, and I, I don't know what the exact number for that would have been, um, but obviously it had a long way to go and that wasn't really all that realistic. Yeah. What, um, so would, at that point, what's the downside of that? Does it require reconstituting the school again? Does it require, what happens if the school fails after the third year? No, if they were still on the list, uh, you know, we we would have had to articulate our plan. It would have been defended uh, at the state, and they would have had to agree that we could use our school improvement grant money for that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we were moving toward that kind of a plan um, before, you know, before the the list came out. But then, when the list came out and got in the paper, the politics got away, and um, that's when you saw the backlash. Yeah, you know, parts of the plan had to do with a charter conversion, parts of the plan had to do with bus routes, parts of the plan affected Lachlan, parts of the plan affected different pieces. And um, before it could really be a plan, 
you know, there was all the backlash and then there was the East Nashville United, the, the community meetings, all of that were pushing for the plan and Bailey was really collateral damage and all of that. Wait a minute. What was the plan and how did that sink Bailey? Despite the school's successes, the students' growth and Dr. Coverstone's clear support. In fall of 2014, MNPS director, Dr. Jesse Register, shared a plan for reorganizing all the schools in East Nashville, a plan that floated the possibility of all-choice enrollment within the Stratford and Maplewood clusters. Any family could choose to send their students to any of the elementary, middle, or secondary schools, including Bailey. This disturbed the equilibrium of gentrifying white parents who had shifted several neighborhood elementary schools to majority white simply by moving in in droves. An all-choice plan meant that families from outside the predominantly white neighborhoods, including families from the Casey homes, could opt to send their children to Lachland or Dan Mills or Inglewood. Those families organized into East Nashville United and made their voices heard. A revised plan, a plan that sacrificed Bailey, was on the table by springtime and ultimately approved by the board. Bailey, as we knew it, would be closed, and the students at Bailey would continue to be segregated in a lightly used wing of Stratford Stem High School, where executive principal Mike Steele would call the shots. It seemed unlikely that the teaming, teacher leadership, and relation-centeredness that marked life at Bailey would continue. As part of that plan, the East Nashville Magnet Middle and High School campus would be split to allow for expansion, and the middle school would move into the former Bailey building on Greenwood Avenue. I asked Dr. Coverstone how this could happen. So the resistance, as now you're saying collateral damage, Bailey becomes collateral damage because of the resistance to this sort of broader plan about how we're going to take care of all the kids in East Nashville. Yes, and the politics that happens when you have two years of data, the third year of data comes out and you didn't cross the threshold and now you're still on the list. And then the argument is, well, you haven't done anything. It hasn't succeeded. And so it's up for this discussion instead of, hey, here's what the data shows about the improvement that's been made, a composite level five school moving yes. two categories on the academic performance framework, et cetera. Um, you know, that never saw the light of day uh, to be sort of part of the, what, what should we do there? Should we continue that forward? In any case, the die was cast. Despite the significant energy and excitement at Bailey, it became clear that, with or without improvement in test scores, the Bailey team could not continue their efforts. Though the administration made some belated effort to keep Dr. Sawyer in the district, he was only too aware that he would not have the same task or team. Uh, I actually got a personal call from the superintendent. I remember my secretary, administrative teammate, came tell you know, the superintendent's on the phone for you. And at the time, the superintendent um, 
he told me he didn't want me to leave. He said, I want you to stay. I want you to stay in, in Metro Nashville. You know, and looking back, um, it was so much about Bailey. It, it, like, I, I don't want to sound altruist. I don't want to sound self-serving, but for me, it was all about this work at Bailey, what was coming alive at Bailey. I couldn't even think about going into mm. another type of role. It was like, if mm. Bailey was going to be taken from my journey and all of ours, mm -hmm. I was out. I, I, I okay. needed a different chapter in my life. Um, and so while I'm grateful, I, I don't know if the system understood the meaning of Bailey to all of us involved mm -hmm. and what it meant to us as educators, as a community, and no other position really was of that much importance. Dr. Sawyer knew that a shift to Stratford did not reflect the desires of the Bailey community. But once the decision was made, he took one for the team. He went at the director's request to a board meeting to support the plan that satisfied the growing and politically adept white community in East Nashville, but did little to fulfill the desires of the Bailey family. Publicly, we had to, we knew the best thing was to support the decision of the committee publicly. Um, I remember I went to the board and had to, it was definitely one of the hardest moments I'd ever faced as a professional to have to go profess my, you know, stamp of approval, if you will, and my support for something that was mm -hmm. going to unravel, mm -hmm. in my opinion, the progress we were making. Um, and that's nothing against Stratford. I I'm simply talking about mm -hmm. the work that was germinating inside of our building. In May 2015, after publicly supporting the district decision, Dr. Sawyer announced that he had accepted a position in Denver Public Schools. Within the week, several other teachers who had been central to the work announced their intentions to leave, especially after it became clear that Dr. Jasper would not be named interim principal for the 2015-16 school year. Dr. Register addressed a parents' meeting at Bailey after the announcement. He did not acknowledge the success at Bailey and explicitly said, in response to a question that I posed, that current Bailey students could not opt to stay at Bailey when it became East, but had to go to Stratford. The original all-choice plan that would give families of color access to the best schools in the area was nowhere in sight. The new plan called for strong turnaround strategies that would remove ineffective teachers and create a strong academic culture in each school. Dr. Coverstone's plan to start with generative relations with kids had lost out in intradistrict politics to those with a fix-the-failing-teachers, fix-the-failing-kids mindset. If you want to read more about this, check out the sources document for this episode at our website, chasingbaileypod.com. Let me insert an editorial comment here about the Coverstone-Sawyer focus on generative relations. The iZone plans and the Bailey model were never just about being nice to kids. 
Coverstone and Sawyer and the whole Bailey entourage were dedicated educators who understood that focusing on relations between and among teachers and students and families was both the right thing to do and the best way to ensure that kids actually grew and developed into caring, competent citizens. stayed open on Greenwood Avenue for the 2015-16 school year while the Stratford Wing was being renovated. The teams and teacher leaders tried to maintain the model, but the momentum slowed. When the students were actually moved in August of 2016, just a handful of Bailey teachers relocated. Dr. Sawyer is now a leader of principals a director of schools in the Denver Public Schools. Dr. Coverstone is an independent education consultant based in Washington, D.C. Bailey faculty are scattered in and out of Nashville and sadly in and out of education. But I didn't yet fully understand why a good school could be sacrificed. Midway through our long conversation, Dr. Sawyer put his finger on why Bailey being closed was so distressing for him. But looking back, I deeply felt at the time that this was not about necessarily Stratford and about the plan. I did not feel that the community at Bailey had been genuinely heard in the process. I did not feel the educators, the students, and the families had been honored and empowered through that process. And for me, that was an ex an example at a very real level of the Bailey story. So it wasn't about you know, what was gonna happen with the integration. It was about the fact the community, in my opinion, the voices had not been heard of our educators and our families. Despite significant improvement, Bailey was still in a precarious position. They had dodged the bullet of state takeover by the Tennessee Achievement School District, but in terms of raw achievement scores, were still near the bottom of a priority schools list that reflected socioeconomic status as much as academic achievement. Dr. Coverstone explains how he was feeling. Um, yeah, I was showing that data internally the whole the whole time and trying to, you know, you know, win some support. And, and for the, for the longest time, I mean, I thought, I think we had a, some good ideas going for how we were yeah. going to go. Forward. And I do think the East Nashville plan, such as it was, that I think is an unfortunate misnomer because it wasn't just East Nashville. It just had one component of it, but um, you know, I do think we were moving toward trying to keep that going. So I was feeling fine, but the, you know, the follow on to that story was here's the, they're still on the priority list, right? They were much okay. higher. They were in the bottom 1% when all this started. Right. So they were, you know, they didn't cross off the priority list. But, you know, it. there's no reason that this school shouldn't have continued with the growth rates that it showed, both in TVOS measures and in the district's own mean achievement level increase, which is a part of the academic performance framework, the, and the growth from mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the bottom category to the middle category out of five. 
on the APF. Those those should absolutely, uh, they were enough. All of that was enough for the Achievement School District not to take them over, but it wasn't enough for the school district in okay, Nashville good. to continue to move forward with that school. And I think that's the real flaw. With this comment, Alan returns us to the question of mindset among the district's administrators. So I asked, how much of this was a function of doubling down on business as usual? And where was Dr. Register with respect to the belief Christian talked about? Um, but yeah, I mean, Dr. Register was was the ally. He was the one who was allowing this to move forward and, and generally believed that we needed to do something different. Um, just, yeah, just, uh, you know, it ran into politics of whether he could demonstrate that it was working uh, when they showed back up on the priority list. At the level of the school, at the level of the data that we were looking at, we could make that case. But um, at the level of, hey, they're still in the bottom 5% of the schools in the district, you said you'd get them out. Um, that simple political argument is just a lot harder to navigate. And was the resistance coming from inside the central office in the district? Was it coming from the board? Was it coming from the public? I mean, the the, the belief that maybe we have to do something different and that that something different might take more than, well, three years. I mean, you get more than that to turn around a sports team, but. It's complicated. Um, again, I think. uh they're in a, a large district and a lot of the offices where compliance is an issue, there's a certainly a fear uh, to let too much control go away for fear that if it blows up, now I'm holding the bag. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a fair way to characterize how much people in the central office would let go. Um, and that's I mean, understandable we, that they're, you know, totally, they're, totally. they're responsible. They're yeah. being held accountable for whatever's yeah. happening. So, yeah. And, and face it, I don't have a lot. I didn't have any more experience at leading an I-Zone than Christian had leading a school. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I came from the private school. So, you know, that and, and you know, they, I was never a public school principal. All of those things matter a great deal in terms of internal kind of cohesion and support. Okay, so one thing is sort of the attitude about teaching and learning and how to fix this problem or how to approach it. But we also talked about confidence in students' capacities, and I'd like to hear from both of you on this. What, um, I mean, one of the things about Christian all the time was he talked about the brilliance of the students, always, in their presence, in the presence of anybody who would listen. You have talked about that, that, that that's what you were looking for, somebody who could who could recognize that these kids really could do this work, whatever that work was that we asked them to do. Was that a, was that a tough sell that these kids, the kids at Bailey and all your iZone schools, they really do have the capacity to do the work we want them to do? Yeah, I was more naive at the time. Um, there was always a lot of conversation about, don't you understand the conditions of the neighborhood? Don't you understand how many challenges these kids have, et cetera, um, at all levels. And um, it bothered me. I didn't realize as much as I do now, after all these years, just how directly that's a, that's a result of racism. Um, I think I... I called it belief mm -hmm. and um, 
I just, and I, at that point, I sort of just thought of it as, you know, like, well, I don't have the levers to eradicate poverty. So I need to uh, figure out a way to take these kids and give them opportunities to do that in their generation. And I, and that's not nearly enough. I've learned that I'm much more focused on the root of racism uh, that is inherent in that, but that's where I was. And so I think also that's where the district was and where really so many people in education were and frankly still are uh, to a large extent and why you know, anti-racism is so much more important than just benign um, not being a racist or you know, excusing the, the, the student's performance as if it were a deficit in them because of the conditions of their neighborhood when all of that is backwards. Mm -hmm. I um, I would add on to that, you know, when you looked at the educators involved at Bailey from every single one had had a, you know, we can, let me put it this way. We can remember as students, if we put back ourselves back in the student desk, that feeling of when a teacher believed you could do something great as a student. And then the antithesis, when you knew a teacher, perhaps at least in my own journey, didn't see it in you and saw it in others. Mm -hmm. And when I think of the teachers at Bailey, Keisha Harding comes to mind immediately. Someone who had, she has this depth of belief in the kids. And when she looked at the kids, she saw the promise and brilliance. And the kids knew it then, and they even know it to this day, mm -hmm. as we see the longevity of those relationships between the teachers and students because the kids knew my teacher believes I can do anything. My now, teacher did you, knows. Yeah, thank you. You talked about, um, you know, the, the, the kind of community within the I-Zone. So obviously, well, I'm going to say all, maybe not completely all, but all of the, the principals in the I-Zone really did think kids could do something worthwhile. But did you find people outside in the district, Christian? Did you have a sense that other people looked at you, all of you I-Zone principals as sort of like, oh God, I wouldn't want to work there or, <laughs> you know, you've got an uphill battle or that's no, I mean, you did have an uphill battle, but you know, that's impossible. What are you doing that for? Well, okay. A, a couple of thoughts come to mind on that. <laughs> One, I got to go back to, it kind of became competitive in the eye zone. Like, look at what my kids are doing. And then look oh, at what okay. kids are doing. Okay. Okay. I mean, the museum magnet showcases, mm -hmm. I go back mm -hmm. to that going on uh, at Arisa's school. I mm -hmm. kept thinking, well, all right, the STEM magnet's going to outpace that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we, it was just this good healthy kind of competition around the sky's the limit. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, that really was happening. I think about Michelle's school, Michelle McVicker and the kind mm -hmm. of work they were doing around teacher leadership and reach extension. So at all levels, it was a belief in the students and it was as much a belief in the teachers. Mm -hmm. Like look at the depth of what teachers can lead. Um, and yeah, I think that when I think back on the way um, some of the feelings that existed in the way I think we as educators were looked at um, and uh, just this perhaps lack of efficacy, collective lack of efficacy on a broader scale of like, yeah, but you know, this, this really isn't the model. This isn't really what's going to work. When in the end, 
it was taking off. And we have a lot of data to prove that there, the engines were firing up in a, a direction that was launching the rocket. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Why, yeah. why I've enjoyed listening to the podcast is because I've heard that from the teachers, mm-hmm. that the belief was there, that it was growing, that it mattered, and that I've heard student voices saying mm-hmm. it was coming through. Mm-hmm. That was very rewarding because I didn't necessarily have the same lens on that. Mm-hmm. And I got patted on the head a lot for being a dreamer and a naive, uh, you know, doesn't really know what's going on, doesn't know enough about education research to know that you need a particular model, doesn't know enough about poverty to know that, you know, you just have to change your expectations, et cetera. And that was what I was surrounded by all the time. And I got to outside of our office, outside of our office. I got to jump in uh, in terms of kind of a newer dimension as an educator was I can remember, for example, there was a walkthrough that occurred and the, the level of defeat and just a real moment as a team when we just felt like the kids and the work that was being done was not being seen and not being And I think that that lack of being seen is a part of the Bailey story. I mean, that goes to the first thing that I was talking about, that if you have a vision of how teaching and learning ought to occur, um, no matter who the kids are, whatever, there's a formula, we know what it looks like. And so when you come in and you haven't been listening to kids and you haven't been watching the, the more subtle indicators that something is happening, you can't see it. And when you show up to try to bring in from the outside something that's working somewhere else because it's working somewhere else, yeah, you're not listening to the students, you're not listening to the mm-hmm. teacher, mm-hmm. you're not responding to the conditions that are in the school. And I think that is another another condition at Bailey as we retrospectively think back. The educators tapped into the students to help build the Bailey experience. I mean, David mm-hmm. Lewis. I mean, I would go, he was just so gifted at tapping into kids and getting them to be a part of the solution. I went up to the library and I'll never forget, we had a maker space in mm-hmm. the room and I caught a, you know, saw a kid with a big drill drilling into the wall. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> what are we doing here? Yeah. It didn't always go as smoothly as you <laughs> <Yeah>. might want. <laughs> Middle schoolers yeah. like to drill into walls and, you know, that was kind of the spirit of Bailey student government was built, the Bailey beat, the robotics, the, you know, Kevin Haggard, Dr. Haggard, the, I mean, everywhere you looked, adults were building these deep connections with kids and building the schooling experience together in a way that I thought was, Mm -hmm. was really healthy. It wasn't prescribed. It was co-constructed. And I think there's a difference. Um, one of the things you raised before, Alan, was the sort of long game versus the silver bullet idea that they're, that, you know, that they, they're, a lot of people are not comfortable with the long game. A lot of people are not comfortable with, all right, let's let it develop. Let's, let's make it happen. It'll be more durable that way. Um, thoughts about that? Was that at work? Did you see that happening? Well, sure. And, and listen, there's a totally legitimate reform impulse that says, Kids only have one year in the fifth grade. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so I get that, Um, you know, and I believe that, but I think the, to play the long game, you have to know what a, 
good school is and it boils down to good relationships between teachers and students who do interesting things together hopefully that interesting thing has to do with what they're supposed to be learning and if it does and you build that then the culture can sustain itself and can continue to grow it happens from the inside out it happens in every school but the things you're talking about christian like student government so on that might already be in place there's lots of things that are just part of a school culture and you come in and bring a new math program and boom, off the charts, right? In, in other schools, you might have to build that culture from scratch. You certainly have to build that culture with attention to who the students are and what they know and what their experiences are and how likely they are to trust adults and how likely the adults are to convey to them that they believe in them. Those are lots of important things. And if, if you actually are watching a school, then you can see schools that are moving in that direction. You give them more time. That's different from a school with very similar you know, top line or bottom line, whatever level it is, numbers in terms of achievement scores, but that who don't have those relationships and those foundations and those cultural norms being developed. So is the game rigged against those who want to change to be more responsive, to want to build on relation? Is the schooling game, generally speaking, um, set up to make it very difficult to do that? I'll be interested in Christian's thought, but I think so. I think the principals have to re-earn the right to do this every year. And unfortunately, the external measure of what they're they're earning that on is is not that internal relationship measure. You have to have people who really understand that and who really can see that and who are really willing to back that up. Because it is also true that you can be nice to kids and not teach them anything. And, you know, that's been the reason, that's been the real breakthrough that some of these standardized tests have brought us is evidence that we're not offering the same amount to every student, but that's only part of the story. And unfortunately, um, I didn't think we'd be stupid enough to teach to the test, but that's really what we've done. Mm -hmm. And we've narrowed our curriculum. We've moved away from relationships. We've drilled and killed. And none of those things have to do with building a long-term sustainable school. If you do what what they were doing at Bailey and you give it three to five more years, I think the scores would also have improved mm -hmm. much. Mm -hmm. They already were. You know, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I, I think back to the, the idea of not being understood, you know, not being understood and a system, a macro system, this isn't just MMPS, it was a broader system not pausing to really understand and and look at potentially something that was very different from what had come across the radar in our own unique way. I mean, even down to, I can remember when we were thinking of this, uh, breaking down the one teacher, one classroom and teacher teaming and not being able to get the teacher growth equation to understand that multiple educators were involved mm -hmm. in shepherding student learning. It was so, it was impossible to get the system to move beyond one teacher, one classroom, both in measuring success and even simply taking attendance. And so I don't think we as a system of educators have figured out how to understand a story inside of a school. And every school, I remember one of a big lesson I learned is every school has its own unique DNA, its own story. But we, uh, we put in this one model 
of trying to understand a school and, and a lot of times schools are misunderstood. And I think Bailey was a case of a school that was misunderstood. After the first episode of the podcast, I had a whole bunch of people call me. I mean, I had a neighbor who listened to it and stopped me and she said, what happened? How did it, you know, how did it end? What happened? What, and um, what's your answer to that? So this is a sort of a really kind of exciting and disheartening example of educators doing their work. What happened? Well, I think Christian hit the nail on the head when he said, you know, everything was not understood at a high enough level, um, you know, which ultimately falls to me as the leader of that work, not to have been able to carry the day on that kind of demonstration and, and, you know, communicating what was going on. But part of it also is just that the system is not set up to hear it. Um, you know, I mean, everything that we do in education is, is good and bad. You know, educational research is very useful, but it, you know, if it's being used out of context to deploy something that doesn't, that it, that the culture in the school is not ready for, or um, that doesn't build that, you know, that doesn't till the seedbed, well, then it's not helpful in that particular circumstance. But we don't have, you know, I, I, I'll say this, I think that there is, uh, there is definitely a real deficit of trust in educators, for sure. And that runs through the whole system. And some of it is for good reason, because the results are not great. Uh, and some of it is not for good reason, because you've got people who really do know what's going on and, and they're watching it and, and helping it to grow. So it's complicated. But I think a lack of understanding, a lack of real deep knowledge of, of what's going on, um, and, and then bang to a lack of trust under, as it was at this time, conditions of great scrutiny, tough accountability, uh, and rapid timeframes, all of which I think also have their place. Um, you, you just had the circumstances that made it, uh, in this case, very difficult, if not impossible, for people to really see what was going on. Yeah, looking back, um, I, I, to this day, wish I had done more at that decision point to have the, if you will, the academic language to raise questions about systemic racism. You know, if, if the decision had been made by the families of Bailey to close it down, I wouldn't look back with regrets now. I, obviously I would regret families feeling that way, but I would have trusted the wisdom of the community's decision. But I was not, I was, I failed our community in that way. And I, I to this day, think deeply about that. I didn't raise those questions at the time. And, um, you know, when you ask, why did it close? Part of me thinks about the quote that, you know, our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. And on a metaphysical scale, a philosophical scale, I think about our teachers who they were proving the possible, the power and impact of, of collective belief and vision and 
the growth of teams. I, I mean, I firmly believe to this day that was in motion. And in a way, the chapter was closed. Um, and I don't even know if it was intentionally closed, but I, I almost wonder if we were fearful to look at the possibility of a different model that was gonna gonna shake things up. I do think the this whole story is just a phenomenal case study of what you're talking about, Alan, that the system is not set up and the 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 values and the way policy gets made and who gets to call the shots. We haven't created a um, a system that would um, that would support investing in the time, putting in some resources, um, and trusting that if you let kids think, let teachers think, let people create relationships, that it will something good will come of that. And that's not that's certainly not been the theory of change for the last thirty years in schools. Um, but it is exactly the theory of change in some elite private schools. It's exactly the theory of change in a bunch of one-off schools that are happening in different places and in public settings where you have that sort of field around them. It's just not, and, and yeah, it's just not something that, that is um, evident in this case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think goes to exactly what we've been saying. I, I've learned a lot about racism from this experience and, um, you know, back then somebody would, somebody asked me, well, what do we need to do to fix schools? I would have said, oh, we got to have teacher teams. And I would have done all the things I just said. And now I, we have to, you have to start, you have to start with racism and you have to start with misunderstanding and, and an inability to understand and build relationships across lines of difference, which after all is what our schools really should be about. Mm -hmm. Well, and don't leave out the bit of a pivot toward anti-racism that we got after George Floyd is now being smacked back with these ridiculous fascist laws. You know, we're, we're looking back, I can be generous and we were all learning about what, you know, what racism really means when it's, you know, post-legal racism, you know, but you can't argue it now. Right. There, are, there, there, there is a stake in the ground that you will not teach in a way that acknowledges the lives, histories, experiences mm -hmm. of communities of color. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's why I spend all my time on youth voice and agency now. I mean, I we should measure the students' experiences in the schools. We should we should we should set our graduation requirements to can a student develop an idea, speak with someone about it, make a decision, work together for some collective progress. Voice and agency is what we should put into everything in schools and what we should get out of everything in schools. And I, even that I think is a little too silver bullety, but it's at least a place to start. Why did Bailey close? The proximate cause was the plan. The plan stirred up political forces and Bailey was caught in the crossfire. But why? How could that happen? Was there a failure to understand in the district office what was happening at Bailey, despite Dr. Coverstone's best efforts to show the data and tell the story? Was it too hard to imagine 
that taking care of teachers and students was the best way, the only way, to ensure long-term growth for all? Was there a tendency to look for the silver bullet and avoid the long game? Was racism just too real? Is the system set up for self-preservation, not allowing for anything that challenges the way we've always done things? Did some naivete on the part of these leaders play a role? The answer to all these questions is yes. And there's something else that's bothering me. David Laboret, in a wonderful little book called Someone Has to Fail, suggests that in America, we really do want to educate all kids. But if we're honest with ourselves, we want our kids to have an advantage, to get a better education than that afforded those Lisa Delpit has called other people's children. It's worth worrying a bit about how much that attitude played out in deciding the fate of the Bailey community. Let's give Dr. Sawyer the last word about all this. You know, it took me, it took me years to let go of some of the emotions, the anger, the feeling of deep loss when this was abruptly kind of paused, cut off. Um, And a very good friend of mine, if you're listening, you know who you are, told me, Christian, it's time to let go of Bailey only in the sense of those emotions and find how Bailey, the insights, the lessons, all that we learn together can come alive in different contexts. Mm -hmm. So life after COVID, Mm -hmm. uh, new school, new district. And in that way, Bailey and the lessons and the, the lives, the connections never really closed down. Mm -hmm. It moved into new form. With that, we close the first season of Chasing Bailey. In the second season, slated to drop as school reopens in September, we'll be thinking about these new forms and lessons learned. We won't leave Bailey behind. We'll be bringing other schools and other educators into dialogue with the Bailey team and the Bailey experience. Look for us then as we think more about what teaming looks like in elementary or secondary schools, as we consider the ups and downs of teacher residencies, as we explore how committed educators are able to focus on what's possible despite systemic constraints. And more, too, from families and students. If you have an idea you'd like to have us explore, or some ways you and your colleagues have found to focus on the relations and responsibility that have to be at the center of our educational efforts, please drop a note to chasingbaileypod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.